Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to Talking with Traders for 2022. Uh, This is the first episode of this podcast series for the new year, for 2022, and I'm delighted for this podcast to welcome Nick van Rensburg. Uh, Nick is an independent macro strategist and trader in South Africa. He consults to a couple of uh, funds, some family offices, a couple of high net worth individuals, and I'm privileged to say that I do a little bit of work with Nick as well, so I get a bit of inside scoop into his thinking, and it's always fascinating hearing from Nick. He's got a a massive brain on him and reads a hell of a lot. Um, So Nick, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Garth. Much appreciated. It's my first podcast. Yeah, it's your first. Oh, fantastic. Well, welcome to the world of podcasts. It's a a fun space to be. And and it's it's more fun when we get guests like yourself who've got a lot of insight to share. But um, we'll get into your insights soon. But Nick, just give us a little bit of background, if you wouldn't mind, for a minute or two, just so we know where you come from and the, the listeners can get a little bit of uh, insight into who you are and, and your background. Uh, so equities got interesting for me at school. My uncle used to trade all these speculative little stocks. And um, I, I just got fascinated by it. I couldn't open an account until I was 18. And um, I then did, but didn't really have enough money in it. You know, I had some waitering money. Uh, I got a couple of friends together. We started an investment partnership at university, uh, did BCom. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, I, I would go to the ticky box and phone orders in, you know, every Monday after we had our meetings on a Sunday. Did that for a couple of years and then joined um, a firm that used to be called Anderson Wilson, which later became Standard Bank. Mm-hmm. And then went through a program at Standard Bank on a number of different desks, private clients, institutional clients, prop desk, uh, the equity derivatives, JV with Macquarie, uh, joined uh, Hedge Fund in 1999, was there until 2009, and um, decided in 2008, basically, that I want to go more global, because I was quite surprised by subprime. You know, the, uh, when people would come and explain it to us, I just could really could not fathom it, you know, especially mm-hmm. when somebody told me about ninja loans, which is no income, no job, no assets. Yeah. And I couldn't really fathom how anyone could lend money to anyone. <laughs> on <that basis>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got fascinated with the offshore portion and um, decided, you know, I really want to focus on that. And I also want to make sure that I don't ever get caught by something like that. The funds that find you in 2008, 
uh, market neutrals flat. The other ones were down a little bit. They were obviously up a hell of a lot in the first half of the year and down in the second half. Mm. But it was quite a big lesson in the, you know, that external things could come from nowhere. So when I started focusing on the U.S., I thought, well, I'd, le- I'd need to learn to trade. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention is I did CFA in the late 90s, finished 99, so I was a fundamentalist. Right. And in 2009, I started um, focusing on technical analysis just because the U.S. was more of a trading market, much more speculative. Finished CMT in 2011, traded a bit uh, as a prop trader at a bank, which you know taught me that that wasn't really a fit for a strategic thinker, day trading. <laughs> uh, so that was a very good you know, education. Um, I did okay, made some money, but it was never going to be something where you know, that would be wildly successful. And since then, I've been focusing on offshore. I'm involved with a mate of mine, Reese, in the UK uh, with the asset management business. And then in 2017, uh, a friend of mine asked me if I could help with a family office you know, on some of their macro views because they felt that a lot of the bottom-up research wasn't really working that well anymore. So that started, and it's kind of just you know, organically grown since. Uh, my focus is mostly on macro. And, you know, to see what tail risks are, and that could be on the upside or on the downside, anything that could cause significant moves in the market. So recent things would have been the Chinese internet, uh, the implosion of that last year, that was a big call of mine. And, you know, it was relatively early on COVID. And mm. then there's obviously other things we, we you kind of anticipate it that does not happen. So, I've, you know, like we, I've always been interested in macro, but the, Probably the biggest problem with macro is you can get into the weeds and it, it's all very interesting and exciting, but you don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. So I overlay the technicals on it. You know, if I'm bearish on bonds, I might have that kind of bias in my head, but I'm looking for a break of 1.7% to the US 10 year for me to be bearish. Right. And then, the, you know, obviously the technicals will give me a view as to how far that could run if it does happen. Sure. And yeah. we happen to be at that kind of level now. Yes, yes. Well, that's it. So the great background there. Thanks, Nick. And um, and as you said, your main thinking, your main uh, approach now is macro. And that's why I thought it would be so useful to get you onto the podcast as our first guest for 2022, because there's certainly quite a lot of major shifts happening in the macro framework for financial markets and economies at large at the moment. So I thought you'd be a great guy to speak to, uh, to kind of sketch the background and sketch the the landscape that we're dealing with now as we head into 22 and how um, and how it's changing. And then ultimately, we'll get into some macro themes and and later in the podcast, some portfolio positioning. And you, you and I exchanged emails and we've kind of got a bit of a structure that we're going to work through in terms of this, this podcast. Um, but first up, I guess, your macro framework and your macro context that you're looking at now as we enter the new year, can you just describe that a bit uh, to us, to the listeners, please? Um, firstly, I believe that markets are complex adaptive systems. And in a complex adaptive system, outcomes can be linear or non-linear. And I, I don't want to confuse things, but the most important thing in a complex adaptive system is basically the starting conditions. Mm. So if you think of the weather, if there's a significant change in temperature and it's in summer, you might have hail. If it's in winter, you might have snow. It's the same event being a change in temperature, but different starting conditions. Right. So in markets, it's the same. So the starting conditions are quite important. And if you take it to something very basic, 
Uh, if you look at, let's say, Impala Platinum, which have had a huge run over the last two or three years, very few people owned it when it was 16 to 25 rand. A lot of people owned it at 300. Mm. And that makes a very big difference in how it responds to news. Now, similarly, on a global basis, uh, probably in the early 2000s, a lot of these sovereign wealth funds started. And they are global investors. They benchmark against the All World Index. And they manage many trillions of dollars. So the kind of people I'm talking about are like Norges, which is the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. China's got one. Singapore's got one. Abu Dhabi. These are some of the biggest ones. The Swiss National Bank, which has also got a massive amount of money that they've printed and bought shares with. Mm. And then um, people like BlackRock, you know, which managed about $9 trillion. So you're talking about a very large sum of money. And that money would move around. Often it moves in January, dependent on how different assets performed the previous year. And that would be a rebalance. So if the U.S. was up 25% and some other market was down 25%, they might switch some money from the U.S. into this other market. Um, so you're basically banking some of your gains in the one place and uh, you know reinvesting it elsewhere. Right. So that would be one kind of trigger. And another trigger would be changes in global monetary policy. Um, or fiscal policy. And we have had that as well. So I anticipate in January, we could see quite a bit of as reallocation. Um, and the question obviously is, where is the money going to go to and where is it coming from? So if you look at where we are as a starting condition, in the All World Index, which is about $75 trillion of equities, mm-hmm. 61% is in the US. Okay, right. So 61% of global equities are US um, by market cap, which uh, is significantly up from 2009 when it was maybe about 42%. So what happened over the last decade is global investors and domestic investors have piled into U.S. equities and they've had an unbelievable return. Now, the question obviously is when you 24% of world GDP, but 61% of global equity market cap, how much more is there to go? Mm. In my view, not that much. And uh, we can touch on baby boomers in a moment, which I think will be a big headwind for U.S. equities in the next decade. I'll get to that in a moment. Right. One of the other things that's happened is, you know, passive investing has grown very significantly because when you're making top-down, you know, essentially what passive investing ETFs are is a top-down investment. It's taking a view of the world and saying, well, I want so much of the money to be in the U.S. and so much in emerging markets and so much in Europe and so forth. And the result of that is, is that money basically flows into all the shares in that index. Now, as more and more passive money has flowed into the US, it's bought the entire S&P 500, the entire NASDAQ, and all of these shares have gone up very significantly. Mm. So if you look at the fundamentals, you know, US earnings are up over the last 15 years by about 130%. And the shares are up 330%. Wow. So... Quite some, you know, that that's basically just a very large re-rating. Mm. If you look at the markets that are very under-owned, EM is relatively under-owned, um, but it's got some issues. We can discuss that in a moment. And then the market that interests me a lot is the UK, which is very under-owned because it's basically the most under-owned developed market in the world today. Ever since Brexit, about a trillion pounds have left UK equities, which is obviously a very significant amount of money. And in an SA context, you would have seen that in something like BTI. You know, BTI used to trade at about 900 Rand. 
Yeah. It's now at 600. And I mean, a portion of the reason why it's not down more is because the rand weakened over the period. Yes. If you look at the pound price at halved, and yeah. that's essentially what happened. For five years, you had this uh, down to sideways trend. I think that money could move into the UK this year, and that's kind of one of my picks. And the effect on SA would be is that any share that's in the FTSE 100 would, you know, if I'm correct, would get passive flows. So the likes of uh, BTI, Anglo-American, BHP for the moment, they're about to commit index suicide and fall out of the FTSE yeah. at the end of the month. Yeah. Um, Glencore, Mondi, those are the kind of stocks that's in the FTSE 100. If the flows broaden out, it'll be into things like Investec, um, Hammerson, Mediclinic, um, Quilter, and 91. Right. So those kind of stocks would get a passive bid that we would not see in SA. We would just see the shares trade up, but we wouldn't really know why. A similar thing we saw last year, uh, actually about a year and a bit ago, the, after the vaccine, Pfizer kind of developed the vaccine, you know, EM rallied really hard. And one of the, the, the big, big ETFs that got big inflows was the, the Vanguard EM index. And that index has got a large amount of small caps in it. Right. So we saw bids for little companies like Famous Brands and PPC and all these kind of things come through passively, push the share prices up. And then obviously that intrigued people and the story started flowing. The fundamentals also started improving just because you had a low base from the previous year. Yeah. And those shares have done really spectacularly well since. Mm. So if you look at companies like Hammerson, it's probably trading at a fraction of where it used to trade. So those kind of stocks could potentially do quite well um, should the UK get uh, inflows. Okay. All right. And yeah. you mentioned baby boomers as a, as a risk, I, th- I guess. Um, just let's talk a bit more about that because it's, it's, it's I mean, the baby boomers now after the COVID pandemic are, are all two years older. Um, so let's talk a little bit about them. So the baby boomers are basically the cohort in the U.S. It's by all, all the people that were born after the Second World War. Clearly, mm. there weren't that many men around during the World War, and birth rates fell during the Second World War. And then when everyone came back, there was an explosion. Uh, and that was a very large cohort. So between 1946 and 64, these baby boomers were born. Um, they're the largest demographic cohort and they've had an unbelievable tailwind through their careers and their lives. And mm. today they control somewhere around 56% of wealth in the U S which is a very large chunk. It's about $70 trillion yeah. and they've got the largest equity um, exposure of any age cohort. So they're not only the biggest, they've also got the largest share of, of their assets being equities. Now, the average age is 66. Um, they range between 57 and 75. So 66 is clearly a retirement age. Mm. And what's interesting about that is, is, you know, you obviously contribute to your pension fund until maybe 65 when you retire, and then you start withdrawing from your pension fund. And that is quite a big difference because when you're contributing, that pension fund continues to buy equities with the inflows. And when a large cohort is now all of a sudden withdrawing, and also, the, you know, it's, so it's a very top-heavy cohort. You can see that they would be sellers of equities over the next decade where they've been buyers for many decades. Yeah. Uh, so my personal view is that the U.S. market will not rise over this decade. On a net-net basis, 2030 will be no higher than 2020 because this is a very large headwind. 
The second large headwind is foreigners have been massively buying the U.S. And like I said, the U.S. is already 61% of the world. So it's unlikely, in my view, that foreigners would increase their holdings much above 61%. I mean, can I get to 63 or 65? Sure. Does it go to 70 or 75? I doubt that. Yeah. And you would need quite a big increase for the U.S. then to continue to outperform. So that's kind of, you know, where... The, the, the macro framework kind of looks at a little bit of demographics. It looks at uh, the effect of passive on the market. Um, maybe one other thing just to discuss quite quickly is that passive is quite a unique thing because a lot of indices do free float adjustments. So for instance, let's say you had discovery and let's say the founders own 20, 10% of the company, then the free float will only be 90%. Mm. If, however, uh, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street own 10% of your company, the free floats are 100. But right. the reality of passive is it actually doesn't trade. You know, the liquidity is extremely low. It buys when it gets inflows. It sells when it gets outflows. They've never had outflows. Mm. And the reason being is they've been taking market share from active managers to passive. So there's been continuous inflows. Even during the month of March 2020 with the COVID crash, there were no outflows out of passive funds. And the result of that is, is that it's a continuous buyer. It holds shares and it basically shrinks the true free float. And what that means is, you know, let's say when passive was small, maybe it was 5% of the market, we would be playing with 95% of the shares. And as it gets bigger and bigger, we're playing with a much smaller percentage. And that has the effect of during inflows creating almost a, uh, exponential rise in equities, which is exactly what's happened in the U.S. Yeah. So the biggest risk for U.S. equities are passive outflows. That is by far the biggest risk because okay. when passive is not buying but actually selling, it's a double negative. Yeah. And, um, you know, th- that could create all kinds of instability in markets in time. Mm. I don't. I don't want to hop onto that, but I think it's worth kind of just being aware of that risk. Yeah, I mean, just one more point to add to that. You talked about passive and and um, the you know, the passive buyer. Another thing I read about more and more all the time is the is uh, corporate share buybacks, and that's also been a major tailwind for equity prices over the last decade, particularly given the very low interest rate regime and the the easy monetary policy. So I guess that's another uh, possible headwind if that. Uh, flow also starts to diminish or dry up. Eh? Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I'd say the odds of it drying up at the moment is relatively low. Mm. I mean, valuations are getting high. And if rates were to rise, then obviously it does become less attractive. But personal experience in the US is that a lot of the CFOs, you know, they do it for their own benefit, not necessarily because the math makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, acquisitions. Uh, of buy, a lot of buybacks being done at valuations that doesn't really make mathematical sense. Mm. But because it does shrink the float along with passive, it is most definitely beneficial to the stock. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. All right, super. Well, that sketches the, the macro framework and the context very, very nicely. Nick, thanks very much for that. Now, if we look forward and go into some of the themes, the macro themes that we are currently dealing with and, and, and that are going to be themes that will stay with us the rest of this year and into the years to come. Um, you've given us a couple of pointers over here that we'll talk through one by one, um, COVID, monetary policy, inflation geopolitical risks. Um, so shall we go through each of these points one by one and um, and, and just discuss them? Uh, the first one being COVID. Uh, obviously, we're in the 
peak of the Omicron uh, wave here in the UK and in Europe uh, and in the US as well. Um, but it's also been described as, I've seen it described as nature's vaccine because it's you know, it's not that severe. It's very transmissible, but you're unlikely to to die from it. So therefore, you know, a lot more people are going to get it, but also they're going to get the immunity once they've had it. So some are saying, well, then that means it's the end of COVID. But I know you've got a bit of a differing view on that. Um, so just sketch that out for us, if you wouldn't mind, Nick. Yeah, so I mean, in the West, I would agree that I think this could be the end of COVID. Um, in China, however, it's quite different in the sense that they're running a zero COVID policy. Mm. So if you look at what happened in the West since 2020, uh, you know, as time progressed, uh, quite a few people got it. So that you were building towards herd immunity, and then you had vaccines, and that aided the build towards herd immunity, and Omicron should finish it. So mm. by the time Omicron's done, we should be at herd immunity uh, in the West, definitely in the developed West. Yeah. In maybe the emerging markets, ex-China, where you don't run zero COVID policies, you know, that was basically more natural herd immunity process with a bit of vaccines. Yeah. So my guess is there it would also come to an end or mostly come to an end, but with some level of, you know, lag behind the West. China is different because from day one, they basically ran a zero COVID policy. So they don't want any infections whatsoever. And then they developed their own vaccine, which is turned out to be the least effective vaccine in the world. Mm. So when you've got a very ineffective vaccine and a zero COVID policy, and that meets a highly transmissible variant of COVID, I think, you know, the, the odds of failure is quite significant. Yeah. There's a couple of outcomes from that. One is you've got a big public event. Well, well, firstly, you've got the Chinese New Year coming up on the 1st of Feb, and a couple of hundred million people tend to travel around China. Mm -hmm. If you remember, the first COVID started with exactly this time of the year, which was when everyone was traveling around the country. Yes. Uh, so we are back at that time. I mean, the estimates are it could be anything like three, 400 million people traveling. It's the largest migration in the world. Um, and you've got a highly transmissible variant. So that alone tells me they're quite unlikely to succeed. The next thing is they've got the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics from the 4th of Feb, where you're going to have international travelers. And if the symptoms are mild, it may not be that, it may not be that easy to pick up that somebody is coming to the country, don't have a fever, not showing any symptoms, might not even show positive on a test. And you know, introduce it. I mean, the odds of getting foreigners in and getting no Omicron in must be extremely low. Yeah. So you've got this event. It's also winter, which, you know, tends to be worse for the, for the, uh, for COVID. So um, for the spread. Mm. And if you add all of those kind of things together, it's quite likely that China will have more lockdowns. Uh, you know, we discussed recently how Xi'an in, um, Northwest China shut down 13 million people in a hard lockdown and they fumigated the entire city, which, you know, it, it's quite a disruptive process yeah. to be doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. So I would say when, when we talk about inflation and supply chains, I think the worst is definitely behind us, but there's, there remains a risk that if China were to go into further lockdowns, you know, especially over the next month, two months, you know, it could extend the whole process of, you know, temporary supply chain issues.
Right. So I'd say that's kind of how I would summarize the views on COVID at the moment. Okay. All right. Super. And then obviously monetary and fiscal policy is is a very big theme as well at the moment. We've got the, the Fed beginning to turn more hawkish. Um, you mentioned the 10-year Treasury yield bumping up through 1.7%, which is a massive technical level, and uh, and obviously taper. So that's another theme which is, is is gaining traction and gaining momentum. And we have certainly seen the markets you know, shifting a bit based on that uh, over the last week or two into the start of the new year. So tell us a bit about your 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 thinking on those uh, aspects of mac of the macro themes. So what the pandemic brought in 2020 was the largest fiscal stimulus in history, and also the largest monetary stimulus in history. The fiscal is now waning, so we are batting against quite a big base. Because if you remember last. Last year in the March quarter, there were two stimulus checks in America. And in this quarter, there'll be none. So the headwind is somewhere around 4.5% of GDP in the US because they had the largest stimulus. That is a bit of a big issue. And it seems like fiscal stimulus is going to struggle from here. You know, the, the, the policies that have been announced, like child credits and so forth, that'll continue. But the impetus is definitely negative in the sense that it's got a... Every quarter, there'll be less and less of it. Mm. You've got midterm elections this year. The Republicans seem likely to win, and they've been dead against any further stimulus because they say the stimulus, fiscal stimulus has driven inflation. So I think fiscal stimulus is near the end. And then monetary stimulus, where rates went to basically zero, and you had record amount of QE is also now coming to an end. Now, the effect of rates at zero is it allowed people to have a lot of leverage and financial assets. Uh, It allowed borrowing for homes. I mean, home building Mm. did really well last year. So those kind of things are now going to come to an end in the next couple of months. This will be the fastest taper in history and also the largest taper in history because you're basically taking 120 billion of buying down to zero. It'll be done by March. And from that point onward, the Fed is ready to hike rates and potentially to run off their balance sheet. So the bond market could have quite a lot of headwinds going forward uh, out of a lack of demand and excess supply situation. So the bias would be that bond yields would go higher. Now, the bond market is always looking for a recession, so they'll probably rally every now and then when they feel that the economy would be under pressure. Mm. Um, So it's not necessarily going to be any kind of straight line. And that's why I just stick with the technical level. If we're above 1.7, I think we can get up to 2.8 or 3% wow. on the US 10-year treasury. Yeah. Now, in time, not, I'm not, this is not for the quarter. I'd say maybe over a one-year type view. Right. Now, if you think about what that does for valuations, a lot of the reason why US equities have outperformed is a lot of the growth stocks have got very high valuations because rates are low. Yeah. You're discounting distant, you know, distant income to today at a very low discount rate and that boosts asset valuations. Mm. So it's quite reasonable to think that growth stocks and the NASDAQ should derate if uh, rates were to be hiked or if the 10-year treasury were to trade quite a bit higher specifically because that's the discount rate. Mm. So that's kind of one of the things where I think is quite a big change. It's also the kind of thing that make asset allocators, uh, you know, force them to make a decision, you know, whether they want to be invested do they still want to be exposed to bonds, to growth stocks? So uh, there's quite a lot on the plate of, you know, as allocators as we enter this year. 
And the yeah. kind of, because the money that's being managed by these people are so massive, you know, when they do shift, it's price insensitive because it's exposure sensitive. I'm selling one market, um, let's say selling 100 billion of US, buying 100 billion of UK, whatever it might be. And when I finish selling the one, I want to be finished buying the other one. Right. So I don't really care what price I'm paying. Mm. So for somebody in that local market, it may look insane by how much something goes up in a very short space of time. But they're banking a decade-long profit or a multi-year profit. So they don't really care about a couple of percent or even 10%. Right. And uh, maybe one of the things is also just worth mentioning on that front is that I did a uh, I look at the numbers last year and how the U.S. have become such a deep liquid market. You know, the top 10 shares in the all world index that are from the U.S. traded over $100 billion a day. Sure. $100 billion a day. Wow. Where the top European shares traded $7 billion a day. So it's 14 times more liquid. Mm. So if you're moving out of a $100 billion market into a $7 billion market, it's obviously a very big deal. Yeah. Similarly, if you take a percent out of a 61% share of the world market and put it into the 39%, one over 61 is much lower than one over 39. Yeah. So the money's got a disproportionate effect on the size of the assets available. It's also got a disproportionate effect on the uh, daily liquidity. Okay. So uh, it would be quite spectacular if we do see money moving into the rest of the world. And I think we may be at the beginning of it, especially into the UK and Europe for the moment. Yeah, well, certainly if you look at the trading action just in the last week or this first week of January, it seems to suggest that that is the case. I mean, we've certainly seen the growth stocks in the US underperforming, as you said, the NASDAQ underperforming, and then markets like the UK has been holding up pretty well. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It looks as if that theme is is gaining traction. Inflation is another one. And you, you mentioned that um, obviously supply chain disruptions in China Etc. Uh, stimulus last year. All of this has kind of helped to drive the inflation rate up in the US and and elsewhere in the UK as well. We've also sitting with you know very high, relatively high inflation relative to the past. Um, but yeah, I mean, how much of that is is supply chain disruption related, and is uh, is likely to be unwound as as things open up? Um, and how much of it is likely to remain sticky, I guess, is the big question that everybody's asking at the moment, right? Yeah, so I think the, one of the themes of this year would be if Om Omicron is the end of the pandemic, where it just becomes like the flu in the West, then you would see spending shift back from goods towards services. And one of the big problems, one of the reasons why we had such a big supply chain issue is it, the U.S. is the bigger, biggest importer of goods, and normally it would spend 69% of consumer spending is on services, 31% on goods. That 31 became 35, which yeah. doesn't sound like a lot, but it made a massive difference in the mix. So you had production shut down in China during the lockdowns, but the demand increased basically from 31 to 35 and it couldn't respond fast enough. As mm. a result, containers were in the wrong places in the world and so forth. Yeah. You've got certain elements of the supply chain which is not going to get solved so uh, or not solved anytime soon. So a portion of it will remain sticky. Uh, and then there's quite good work done by the San Francisco Fed where they basically split inflation from 
things not related to supply chain and things not sorry uh, products not not affected by the pandemic and products affected by the pandemic clearly the products affected by the pandemic has been you know has risen very significantly but even the products not affected is up at 3% inflation which is well above the fed's 2% target right so that's one issue the second issue is that uh, there was a survey out earlier this week and i think we had 25 year highs as far as expectations for wage increases are concerned and the jobs number on wednesday was very big mm. so i would say that the wages definitely is a risk a lot of people dismiss it but it seems obvious to me that that, that is a risk partly because a lot, you know a lot more baby boomers are retiring than normal right i think a lot of them took a view you know that uh, they've missed two years of their life and they want to spend the rest of their, their time and money with their grandkids or traveling and um, they don't want to be working mm. so the, the, there's definitely an element of where the job market has shrunk you know, on the supply side Right. And I think that'll be a continuous issue. And then the other thing is housing. Housing is a very large percentage of the CPI basket, and that's been increasing quite significantly, also over 3%. So even though a lot of the supply chain issues will you know, reverse, uh, there's the, the broader inflation basket is definitely increasing. And services, I think services inflation is going to increase quite a bit this year if the spending shifts from goods back to services, because services is the bulk of the spending basket. Mm. You know, things like flights and cruises and all these kind of things where capacity has been taken out. Um, a lot of restaurants went under. Yeah. So if people are fully living outside again, if things normalize, let's say in the Northern Hemisphere spring, summer, I would think that services inflation is going to be quite strong. Yes. So, yes, it's definitely going to come off the levels of 6.8%. But it's not necessarily going to be as low as what uh, I think a lot of the economists think. Yeah, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in the middle. But those yeah. th- those issues and these things that you've you've spoken about, you can kind of, I guess, you can model them to a certain extent and maybe try and introduce some level of predictability into it. But geopolitical risks, I guess, are one area where it's it's that's always a little bit uh, difficult to predict. And I know you've got. You've listed three uh, geopolitical risks that are top of mind for this year: Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan, and um, and then the U.S. midterm elections. I mean, should we just talk Russia, Ukraine as a starting point, and we'll then talk about the other two as well? You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Yeah, so the we're obviously already sitting with strained supply chains and Russia and Ukraine together produce about, or they export about 25% of the world's wheat and 15% of the world's corn. Russia is a top three oil producer, aluminium producer, palladium, top number one palladium producer. So there's quite a few commodities affected by uh, if the situation would get to the point where Russia invades the Ukraine, which seems like reasonable odds. Mm. The U.S. has said that they would put the most severe sanctions against Russia. Now, severe sanctions may affect the flow of goods. 
because they would basically cut them out of the SWIFT system, which is one of the main threats that uh, that um, Secretary of State made against uh, Russia. Right. So you could find that because of, you know, the, the, the U.S. has basically said they're not going to militarily interfere in the Ukraine situation, but financially they will. And that that basically brings this argument to the point where it could worsen supply chains. It could also cause a bit of eruptions, obviously, in markets, and it would be potentially net negative for Europe, uh, seeing that it's right on the border with Europe, and Europe are the most likely to get involved militarily if anyone does get involved militarily right. uh, by NATO. Although it, it seems like that's not a, a very good fight to go fight. <laughs> so Russia-Ukraine could create a bit of geopolitical friction. I'd say gold would be one of your better hedges against that. That would happen. In SA, at some point, something like Harmony would probably be the better play. Uh, it's doing pretty poorly at the moment because gold's big headwind is, uh, is when real rates rise, which it's doing at the moment, yeah. as bond yields are increasing. But uh, So that's kind of the, the fundamental headwind for gold for this year, but geopolitical events could definitely give it a rally. Yeah. And uh, the rand should weaken at the same time, so Harmony should be quite well-placed for that. Okay. Um, there's a, one of the theories, geopolitical theories, is that if Russia were to make a move on Ukraine, China may use the opportunity to also make a move on Taiwan. Now, I don't have a very strong feel on that. I would be surprised if it's before the Beijing Olympics or during the Beijing Olympics. I suspect it would be after, maybe shortly after if it does happen, maybe in March, because mm. uh, Russia is running out of time with Ukraine. You don't want to be... The, um, I listened to an interview with a CIA analyst and he said that you want to do this in winter, you definitely don't want to do it in spring during the rainy season because the, the tanks will be stuck in the mud. Okay. So if, if Russia were to make a move, it should be kind of before, let's say, March, April. If China does anything towards Taiwan, I think that's probably the single biggest geopolitical risk I can think of because Taiwan is a very significant semiconductor producer and it's the lifeblood of Silicon Valley. So the NASDAQ is fed by what comes out of Taiwan and China. Now, China, after, let's, let's assume for a moment they succeed, they take over Taiwan and now they control the bulk of semiconductors in the world. About 80% of the rare earths, which are used in electric vehicles and a whole range of new technologies. And they also control over 80% of magnesium. Magnesium goes into an aluminium alloy that makes it stronger. And a lot of vehicles are using aluminium alloy to make the cars lighter, be more fuel efficient. All electric cars are aluminium alloy because the battery packs are very heavy. So to save, you know, to make the vehicle you are pulling with your battery power lighter, they use aluminium alloy. It's, and then semiconductors obviously go into absolutely anything. Everything. I mean, even vehicles have now got far more, as we saw with the semiconductor shortages. Yes. So if you have a situation where China now controls Taiwan, then the NASDAQ basically, basically China will have a veto right on the growth of the NASDAQ, which I don't think is a risk that any of the NASDAQ investors are thinking about at the moment. Yeah. Now, the question is, does it happen this year or when does it happen? Deng Xiaoping said it should happen before 2028. Uh, Xi Jinping, I think, would love to do it because it'll be, you know, it's a legacy thing for him. 
Yeah. And he's on numerous occasions said he'd like to do it. He's given no indication that it's imminent, but it is the kind of thing that could happen at some point in time. If it happens in five or 10 years' time, the US would have had enough time to maybe diversify semiconductor supply, although it hasn't really started yet. It talks about it, but it hasn't actually done anything. So, I mean, the NASDAQ market is obviously the most highly rated market, and this type of geopolitical event, I think, would be a complete killer. Stocks most affected directly would be Apple and Tesla because they produce in China. Mm. They sell in China. I mean, in the case of Apple, the bulk of their production is in China and Taiwan. And then they sell about 20% of their revenue comes from China. Tesla has got a big factory in China. It sells there and uh, it also produces for the export market into Europe. Mm. And then obviously all the supplies they use come from there. So it wouldn't be an ideal situation. You know, and you can imagine that uh, if something like that were to happen and the U.S. decides it will not get militarily involved, which it can only lose, yeah. it can only lose a military fight there, it's not their own territory, mm. um, then it would hit China with sanctions and boycotts and you know, trade duties and all kinds of things. And a natural nationalist response would be to, um, to boycott U.S. products in China, of which yeah. Apple is number one. So those are the kind of things that could happen. I mean, Apple's the biggest company in the S&P. It's by far the biggest company in the NASDAQ. It's also the biggest company in the world. Yes. So it would most definitely have global implications if that were to happen. Yeah. Okay. And finally, the U.S. midterm elections coming up. Um, that's the last point that you had as a, as a potential geopolitical risk. So one of the issues there is that it seems for the moment that the Republicans are going to win the midterm elections because a lot of people are very upset with the Democrats with all the fiscal stimulus and that it's caused broad-based inflation. And that is definitely partially correct. I mean, obviously, the supply chain is not their fault. But the fact that people have had extra money and spent it on Apple iPhones and so forth, you know, that has indeed been the case. Mm. Now, we're already seeing that the Republicans have boycotted any form of fiscal stimulus over the last six months, and I doubt that they're going to be available to vote for any fiscal stimulus once they take control of the House and the Senate. Um, it looks like the Build Back Better plan, which is Biden's final fiscal plan, may not get voted through. It failed in December. Um, there is a small chance it still happens. But, I mean, this is very different from the previous plans. This is a multi-year plan. It's a small amount of money per annum. It's not like people getting... $1,800 or $1,200 checks or anything like that. Right. That type of stimulus, I think, is behind us. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people are, you know, one of the kind of the, the common views over the last two years have been you should buy Bitcoin because there's so much money printing or you should buy this or that because there's so much money printing. Well, the money printing may be coming to a complete halt this year because if the Fed is not doing QE and running down its balance sheet, and hiking rates, it's withdrawing a lot of money out of the system. Yeah. And the very first thing that could get hurt by that would be financial assets. You know, uh, JP Morgan Asset Management has got this great quarterly uh, report they put out, and they showed that US total financial assets is now 5.6 times GDP. So if you wonder why there's no relationship between earnings or GDP to companies, it's because leverage have allowed financial assets to go up. Financial assets have become 5.6 times the GDP. 
So uh, it, it's not related because it's just so much bigger. The markets become too big. Equities and bonds alone, I think, is about three and a half times GDP. Yeah. So these are very big numbers, and it's gone vertical over the last year and a half since yeah. COVID happened. Yeah. The S&P yeah. is, about, is up 40% from its all-time high before COVID. Just to give you an idea. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the picture you're painting is basically we've had the the foot's been flat on the accelerator, and now they're about to slam it onto the brake, and that's going to create volatility, no doubt. I, I would be surprised if it doesn't, because it's a very abrupt change. Yeah. And you know, from a very large base. So uh, if we, you know, I'd be betting on volatility this year. I think that's a fair bet. Yeah. And on that kind of basis, you want to be in things that not many other people own. You don't want to be in crowded trades because people sell what they own. And if you're in a crowded trade with many, many other people who may panic, you could be in a very bad situation. Yeah. So the UK is very underowned. I don't think that's a crowded trade at all. It's also very cheap and it's got a high dividend yield. So if you look at things like BTI, BTI has got an 8% dividend yield. Vodafone, I think, is about 7 Barclays is in a, you know should do buybacks and pay bigger dividends this year. You know those kind of companies are much more attractive to me than uh, buying any of the U.S. tech companies, uh, and a lot of them got no relation whatsoever to reality. Never mind to fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So that's it. I mean, and we, we've spoken there a little bit now. But you've actually talked a little bit about um, portfolio positioning, but that's sort of the one of the last points. There's, there's two more points we, we really want to deal with, bigger points. But um, from a, a portfolio positioning perspective, if I kind of read you right, it's value favored over, over growth. Um, you like the UK versus the, the S&P 500 as a, as a, a relative play. Um, yes. You also mentioned in in the write up uh, when we exchanged emails, you bullish on oil and reopening stocks. So that's that's something we haven't discussed too much in this in this conversation yet. Just chat us through that a little bit, if you would, Nick. So if the economy, so the, so the end of the pandemic is not as bullish for markets as what it is for the economy. You know, in the sense, because the end of the pandemic would be a normalization of the economy. So people would be spending more on services, going to restaurants, flying around, traveling, these type of things. And the UK has just taken quite a lot of constraints for travel away. And I suspect other countries are going to follow through this year. So travel should increase quite significantly. And, you know, one of the things as part of oil demand that has been lagging has been jet fuel demand. Normally, that's about 9% of the total oil demand. I think it's down to about 6 So oh. it should increase quite significantly this year. Okay. So that's on the demand side. The big risk for oil is that China locks down. That is the single big, biggest risk, I think, for oil. Uh, for most, in most other ways, the risk is on the upside because the supply is struggling to keep up with the demand. You know, demand is already at, the 20, at 2019 levels. Sure. And that is despite some countries still being in some level of lockdown, services not being fully open, travel being hard, jet fuel demand being lower. Um, so you, the, the expectation would be that um, demand would still be strong this year if you don't have Chinese lockdowns, which is obviously, a, you know, as we discussed, a big risk. Yeah. Uh, and then on the supply chart side, you know, there's a lot of um, – People are quite calm about oil because they believe that OPEC has got quite a lot of spare capacity. 
But the reality is, is that OPEC members are not making their current capacity, their, their, their current um, quotas. They're producing below quota. Now, if there's one thing about OPEC is people have always cheated. They've always tried to produce more than what their quota was. Right. And the fact that they're not producing it basically means that they haven't been investing in infrastructure, in maintenance. And um, so the supply side of oil is tough. You know, for many years, it's been unfashionable to be investing in oil. Yeah. I'd say banks have closed the taps on the shale, you know, shale boom in America. So there's a real risk that at some point shale production would fall over because they, you know, you've got a very short lifespan of a well. And when that's, when the, the, the well's been um, tapped, it's tapped. Then you yeah. need to be drilling for new wells and that's not really happening to a great extent. Mm. So that, so oil demand should be relatively strong and obviously services, there's a fair amount of oil demand within services. So if the economy normalizes from a little bit more from goods to services, I think that would be quite bullish for reopening stocks and also potentially for oil. Okay. And then the other one that we haven't discussed yet is China. Yes. Chinese market has really underperformed. Chinese technology has underperformed unbelievably compared to the NASDAQ over the last year. I mean, even worse than what I would have thought. Yeah. Um, Despite the clampdown, the power, you know, reset in China. And the question, obviously, is at some point, do people reallocate money to Chinese technology? Because these are still pretty good companies. They've got dominant positions in their markets. Yes, competitors will be allowed to get in, uh, but they're not going to just roll over and die. So I am looking for a bottom in Chinese technology, but it's definitely not visible on the charts as yet. Yeah. So uh, while I anticipate it in my head, um, I've not pulled any triggers because the charts are still very much negative on Chinese technology. Yeah, I yeah, know they certainly are heading south. Um, but I know you just from chatting to you and the work that we've done together, you you look at the K Web, which is the China Internet uh, ETF. And I guess for listeners yes. who who are wanting to get involved, if they are at some point, you know, if there's an evidence of a bottoming in that China Internet market, that would be a nice diversified way to play it through that ETF, right? Uh, yeah, so the, it's that one or the CQQQ. Those are the two main ones that are the, it's got the largest AUM within the ETFs. They're very liquid, um, well followed. Yeah. Um, you know, just for reference, KWeb was at 105 a year ago. It's now at uh, 35. Yeah. So it's fallen very significantly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's no sign that there's a bottom. And I mean, obviously, if, you know, China makes a move on Taiwan, that it's not going to go well for KWeb. But other than that, at some point, it should bottom out. And uh, you'd think from here, the upside should be a bit larger than the downside. Yeah, it does look like it will ultimately become one of those sort of asymmetric bets at some point. But yeah, as you say, not at there yet. Point, yeah. And, and we've always, like we always say in trading, you've got to be very careful of picking bottoms. But certainly something to watch. And the last point then, um, which I wanted to chat to you about, Nick, is, is uh, some of the hyped up stuff. I know you, you've been very serious on this conversation, actually. And, and I know from talking to you privately, you're normally quite a humorous guy. So, <laughs> but I, mean, you, you, I know you've always had some very fascinating and, and humorous views on, um, on some of this hyped up stuff, Tesla, cryptocurrencies, non-fungible tokens and things. Um, and in the email that you and I exchanged uh, ahead of this podcast, you said you wanted to talk about the 
Gartner hype cycle. And it's something I'd actually not seen before, but so I, I Googled it and well, you talk, talk us through it. I mean, <laughs> I can see exactly how you, how you relate that back to things like Tesla, cryptos and, and non-fungible tokens. So, you know, you start off with the innovation, uh, let's call it NFTs, and then people would sell it, the idea. There's a lot of promoters, they'll be launching these things, you'll hear stories about somebody making, a, you know, millions of dollars in a crypto kitty or something. And so the process kind of goes, uh, but the infrastructure around it, the use case is not really that well defined. So what happens is you get a lot of supply come into the market. The hype builds and builds and builds, and it gets into what Gartner calls the peak of inflated expectations. Now, we have definitely reached that level in Bitcoin before, I'd say probably in 2017. Yeah. You could argue maybe now a little bit as well, because the use case is also not that well-defined as yet, at least not as far as I can see. Yeah. Um, NFTs, we're still relatively early, but... And if, you know, the, the development cycle for something like NFT is really fast because you and I can come up with the NFT by the end of the day where we cannot build, let's say, another 3D printing company by the end of, I don't know, the quarter. Yeah. It'll take us much longer to build a physical business than what it does to just punch out a couple of NFTs. So the, the development cycle goes really, really quickly. And then what happens is at some point you uh, roll over. There's too many suppliers lots of supply, they're not doing that well. You kind of get to the Dogecoins or the Shiba Inus of the crypto world where there's just too many. They don't have any relation to what the original idea was related to. You know, the idea of Bitcoin is scarcity. Yeah. And Shiba Inu has got no scarcity and neither does Dogecoin. Yeah. So those things are much more like fiat money, but they've got these little stories around it and they've got these promoters on Twitter and whatever. <laughs> Often what you see in this kind of a, you know, in the in the inflated expectations or in the hype, there's it's a promotion market. There's a lot of promoters trying to sell you stuff and tell you stories and how wonderful it's going to be, but there's no real use case. So I'd say in NFTs there will definitely be a use case in time, and there are really interesting use cases for it. But it'll take a bit of time to get there. Yeah. My guess is a couple of people will make an absolute fortune, and most people will lose a lot of money. If you you know, like if you want to kind of uh, let's maybe relate it to something that people can visualize. Uh, if you look at Amazon, it listed in 97, 98. It went from, I can't remember exactly where it listed, but let's say $20, went up to about 105. And when the dot-com bust happened, it fell down to about 5 or $6. Yeah. And ever since then, it's been up unbelievable. You know, it's an unbelievable performer. And it raised very little money. It's obviously an unbelievable business. And what happened was when the e-commerce trend started, it was clear that there's something there. You know, we all kind of felt that there's, the world is changing and something's happening. You didn't know who's going to win. And everyone would list something like pets.com or funerals.com or diapers.com or, you know, any wordplus.com. Yeah. Uh, so the supply increased very significantly. And because the supply increased so much, but there wasn't any real substance yet, it imploded. And you ended up in this trough of disillusionment. And then eventually there's fewer people, fewer companies left. You know, Amazon outlived most of its peers. Yeah. Amazon, eBay, there weren't that many other tech companies that actually survived. You know, most of them actually just disappeared. Yes. So similarly, most of these NFTs will just disappear. There'll be zeros. A lot of the, you know, there were over a thousand um, 
ICOs in the Bitcoin bubble of 2017, most of them are gone. When I say most, it's probably 98% of them are gone. Similarly, many of the NFTs will be gone. So I tend to focus more on the trough of disillusionment. That's where I, I get into my groove because yeah. you can get an idea of who's surviving, uh, who's serious, who's not just there for the money, and what's the use case for this. So uh, we're not in the trough of disillusion yet, but if we have a call at that point, you know, that's when uh, NFTs, I think, would be interesting. For yeah. the moment, you've got to get the, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of wheat and a lot of chaff, and eventually we'll get to the point where there's wheat. Yeah. We're yeah. not there yet. Yeah, I yeah. guess it's, it's that classic um, bubble, boom-bust bubble situation, right, which we've seen so many times in, the, in markets in the past where gets overhyped and then ultimately it all comes crashing down. And like you said, that you, you then find what's actually of value once all the dust is settled. And that's where you can sort of invest with more confidence, I guess, for the longer term. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and on that theme, I mean, Tesla is something we haven't really discussed, but um, I, I guess Tesla or electric vehicles in general as a, as an industry uh, is similar in a way, right? Because it's it's also very hyped up. Um, the valuation on a company like Tesla, as we know, is crazy. But um, it's no, there's no doubt it's the future. It is the future of, of transportation. Electric vehicles are, are going to be with us forever. But again, you know, the expectations and the valuations of these companies right now just seems outrageous. And perhaps there needs to be a good cleansing of the system there as well before you can establish who the long-term survivors are. Yeah, I think the um, there's another model in Silicon Valley called um, uh, crossing the chasm, and it's when do you move from early adopters into the early majority of the market? And the early majority, I don't think Tesla will ever get there. I think it's quite unlikely that it'll ever cross the chasm. So what it's doing at the moment is it's basically selling to all the early adopters around the world. And that portion of the market is maybe 15%, 16% of the market. Mm. Um, to get into the early majority, you need to be a high-quality, reliable product uh, w- with a brand that people recognize. So I think it's much more likely that VW, BMW, Merck, Porsche, these kind of people mm. will be selling to the early majority. And, I mean, just to give you uh, one data point, in uh, J.D. Power runs a quality survey in America, and Tesla was ranked 30, 32, somewhere around there which is mind-blowing because an electric vehicle is one of the very few electric vehicles on the list. And electric vehicles should be number one. And the reason for it is it's got very few moving parts. Yeah. You know, the less things that move, the less things can break. And so it should actually just be naturally number one or number two. And it's over 30. So there are internal combustion engine companies that are doing much better as far as quality is concerned. So if you ask me, would I buy a Tesla or would I buy a VW, Audi, Merck, Porsche, um, you know, electric vehicle, I would most definitely buy one of the latter and not a Tesla yeah. because I don't want to spend my life in body shops getting repairs or, you know, dealing with dealers or fighting over warranties or whatever. Yeah. It's like a car should take friction away from me, not add it to my life. Yeah. Early adopters don't, they, they're not worried about, you know, by that kind of admin. They want to be known to be first to be early mm. so but they're also quite fickle and, and that's one of the things they'll move on to the next thing when there's a next hotter thing eventually yeah there's that itself I'd, I'd say like it, it made me come up with the cult theory of markets i read books on cults watch some documentaries on netflix and essentially it's a cult the same way as what crypto is a cult nfts will be a cult 
all these kind of new things become a cult. And, um, you know, you've got to look at them very differently than what you do with a normal company. Because with a normal company, you look at the fundamentals and you can take a view. Yeah. When you've got a religion that is tied to a stock, <laughs> you know, like you and I can fight over some religion for the rest of our lives and no one will win. There's no winner or no loser. You, there's, there's actually just two losers <laughs> yeah, because it's basically a fight that no one can win. Yeah. So when you're fighting with somebody on Tesla, it's, you know, the, the stock is so far removed from reality. You, it's kind of like fighting with people over their feelings, yeah. you know, or their religion. It's just really not worth it, yeah. which is why I've got a pseudonym for a Twitter handle. <laughs> so you can kind of stick to the facts. Yeah, I know. Get into the mud. <laughs> yes. Well, that's it. That's why we said we're not going to disclose who you are on Twitter. I know who you are, but um, we won't make that public and uh, you can keep fighting your fights behind your pseudonym. Nick, I'm going to end the podcast there because we are out of time, um, but it's been really, really great chatting to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I think it, the listeners are in for such a, a wealth of wisdom from you uh, as we approach, or well, not approach, we're already into 2022, but it's going to be an interesting year. And I think you've really sketched out the background very nicely for us and, and the possible scenarios for the year ahead. So I thank you so much for your time, Nick. It's been great chatting to you. And um, and maybe we get you back on the podcast again at the start of, of next year to do this all over again. I'd love to do that. Sure. Thank you very much. It was a good experience. I apologize that I wasn't very funny this uh, <laughs> in this. Uh, I couldn't remember any of the jokes you mentioned. <laughs> well, the listeners must know you actually are quite a funny guy when you're not being serious. This has been great, Nick. Thanks for chatting. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And okay. you take care. Thanks. Okay, brilliant. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.